Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a lecture from Dr. Leland Riken entitled, Reading Literature with C.S. Lewis. Check out more from Dr. Riken now available on Canon Plus. Uh, reading Literature with C.S. Lewis. In speaking to you about reading literature with C.S. Lewis, I am sharing a personal passion with you. Whereas most of you probably know Lewis, the fiction writer, best, the Lewis that I know best is Lewis, the literary scholar. When I compile the indexes for my books on literature, it turns out that I have quoted from C.S. Lewis more often than any other author. And a hallowed Riken ritual in the classroom is for me to preface a quotation with the question, as who said? To which the stock answer is, C.S. Lewis. For purposes of my address this morning, I've simply codified my thoughts on the things that are the most salient features of C.S. Lewis's criticism, illustrated by some of my favorite quotations. I will cover five vintage Lewis traits. The personal touch. I begin with a trait that I call simply the personal touch. To read literature with C.S. Lewis is to get to know Lewis himself, and this is part of the appeal of his criticism. Criticism as an impersonal ex-scholarly inquiry did not occur as an option to Lewis. His own tastes and personality come through at nearly every turn. Sometimes this takes the form of incidental insights into life that Lewis tosses in gratuitously. In Thomas More's Apology, writes Lewis, we see More being drawn, as all controversialists are drawn, away from the main issue into self-defense. Moore's Dialogue of Comfort, quote, written under the shadow of the scaffold, is full of comfort, courage, and humor. Thus, some men's religion fails at the pinch. That of others does not appear to pluck up heart until the pinch comes. Spencer chose truth rather than grace as the guide to holiness in Book One of the Fairy Queen, quote, because he was writing in an age of religious doubt when the discovery of truth was a prerequisite to the conquest of sin a fact which would have rendered his story uninteresting in some centuries, but which should recommend it to us. Regarding Machiavelli's unoriginality, Lewis comments, not to be, but to seem virtuous. It is a formula whose utility we all discovered in the nursery. (laughs) 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 To read literature with C.S. Lewis is to share anecdotes that stick in our memories with a certain British quaintness, Beyond all doubt, writes Lewis, it is best to have made one's acquaintance with Spencer in a very large and preferably illustrated edition of the Fairy Queen on a wet day between the ages of 12 and 16. Having sketched the ideal, Lewis then softens the requirements a bit. It is not perhaps absolutely necessary to have a large edition, in fact, but it is imperative that you should think of the Fairy Queen as a book suitable for reading in a heavy volume at a table for devout, prolonged, and leisurely perusal. Lewis's own ideal of happiness, quote, would be to read Italian epics, to be always convalescent from some small illness and always (laughs) seated in a window that overlooked the sea. (laughs) Uh, There to read these poems eight hours of each happy day. (laughs) Uh, Some of Lewis's anecdotes are real-life ones. We can all verify his observation that children ask for the same story over and over again and in the same words, 
They want to have, again, the, quote, surprise of discovering that what Sam Little Red Riding Hood's grandmother is really the wolf. It is better when you know it is coming. That's from his classic essay entitled On Stories. We are at Lewis's side in a secondhand bookstore as he looks at editions of narrative poems with underlining on the first two pages only, with the rest of the books virginal, proof that the readers set out looking for good lines and were soon frustrated in their quest. We sit with Lewis at dinner as he remarks to someone that he was reading Graham in German of an evening, but never bothered to look up a word I didn't know adding, so that it is often great fun, guessing what it was that the old woman gave to the prince, <laughs> which he afterwards lost in the wood. <laughs> we overhear a fellow examiner repulse Lewis's attempt to discuss a writer on whom several students had written with the put down, good God, man, do you want to go on after hours? Didn't you hear the hooter blow? I note in passing that for an American, one of the charms of reading Lewis is the continuous flavor of Britishness that permeates the discussion. Entering imagined worlds. The helpfulness of Lewis's commentary on authors and texts resides partly in the theory of literature that undergirds the commentary. The most important ingredient in that theory is the notion of literature as world-making. World-making is the most obvious feature of the fiction that Lewis himself wrote. What is less well-known is the degree to which Lewis's criticism is likewise predicated on the premise that to read literature is to enter a distinct world that has identifiable characteristics that remove it from waking empirical reality. When Lewis finally wrote his only major work of literary theory, the argument wound its way in the famous last chapter to a theory of literature as an alternate world. The good of literature, Lewis concludes, is that we want to be more than ourselves. We want to see with other eyes, to imagine with other imaginations, to feel with other hearts, as well as our own. To clinch the point, Lewis writes, we demand windows. Literature as logos is a series of windows, even of doors. Literature, quote, admits us to experiences other than our own. Despite the regularity with which Lewis talks about the ideas of literature, he never limits his attention to the ideational level. To read a play, he wrote, as primarily a vehicle for philosophy is an outrage to the thing the poet has made for us. Because a poem, quote, is not merely logos, something said, but poema, something made. A good index to Lewis's theory of reading literature as a process of entering an alternate world of the imagination is his classic essay entitled On Story. After cataloging the qualities of the imagined world in Kenneth Graham's story, The Wind and the Willows, Lewis concludes that the book is a specimen of the most scandalous escapism that might be expected to unfit us for the harshness of reality and send us back to our daily lives unsettled and discontented. But the reverse is actually true. I quote, the whole story, paradoxically enough, strengthens our relish for real life. This excursion into the preposterous sends us back with renewed pleasure to the actual. Here in microcosm is Lewis's theory of reading as a process of entering an alternate world that is merely imagined, yet intimately related to the empirical world in which we live. One of Lewis's greatest virtues as a critic springs directly from this theory. He consistently steps forward as the reader's travel guide helping provide an entree into a new world, pointing out highlights of the landscape, sharing the delights and insights of the journey. 
Lewis is at his best in the role of writing general introductions to an author, his introductory essay on Spencer, a work, a preface to Paradise Lost, an era, his survey of 16th century English literature, a book, Reflections on the Psalms, a tradition, the allegory of love. Writing at a time when it would have been easy to reduce these to a history of ideas format, Lewis instead maintains an allegiance to them as worlds of the imagination. In a key phrase in the allegory of love, Lewis speaks of the history of imagination, the history of imagination. This is Lewis's real interest in his historical criticism. Lewis's special gift is to highlight what a reader would most benefit from knowing at the beginning of an acquaintance with an author or work. As part of that, one of Lewis's great gifts is to convey a sense of the momentousness of the imagined worlds of literature, as when he calls pastoral literature, quote, a region in the mind which does exist and which should be visited often. I love that. Pastoral, or the literature of the earthly paradise, is a region in the mind which does exist and which should be visited often. Everywhere we turn in Lewis's literary criticism, we find ourselves in the presence of someone who simply assumes that the world of literature is a self-rewarding world of overwhelming importance. I think, for example, of the glimpse Lewis gives of his experiences with Shakespeare's Hamlet. From our first childish reading of the ghost scenes, how's that for an insight into a British childhood? Early childish reading of the ghost scenes of Hamlet. (laughs) Down to those golden minutes which we stole from marking examination papers on Hamlet to read a few pages of Hamlet itself. When have we ever known the day or the hour when its enchantment failed? Lewis later calls Hamlet something of inestimable importance in which the real and lasting mystery of our human situation has been greatly depicted. Lewis also held specific ideas about the general traits of the imaginative world that we enter when we read. It is a world that is, quote, simplified and heightened. The world of literature is simplified and heightened. It is, moreover, a world of concrete human experience. In an extended comparison between ordinary scientific language and poetic language, Lewis comes to the conclusion that, quote, the most remarkable of the powers of poetic language is the ability to convey to us the quality of experiences. The quality of experiences. In elaboration of that thesis, Lewis notes that poetry, when compared to straight prose, contains a great many more adjectives. From Homer, who never omits to tell us that the ships were black and the sea salt or even wet, poets are always telling us that grass is green or thunder loud or lips red. A large part of the world of the imagination consists, moreover, of recurrent images and motifs that Lewis variously calls stock themes, the products of the primitive or instinctive mind, and, despite his skepticism about Jungian theory, archetypes or archetypal patterns. Those are all quoted phrases. Primeval images such as, quote, giants, dragons, paradises, gods, and the like are themselves the expression of certain basic elements in man's spiritual experience. I call them archetypes. Lewis's book, Spencer's Images of Life, is a masterful example of what we might call archetypal criticism, exploring the master images and motifs of the poem. As for the value of entering imagined worlds, Lewis assumes at least four things, as his actual commentary on works of literature demonstrates. One is that it is simply pleasurable to enter such worlds. 
We catch the hints of this when Lewis, in creating an apology for culture, makes one of the planks in that defense, the fact that, quote, when I ask what culture has done for me personally, the most obviously true answer is that it has given me quite an enormous amount of pleasure. Herein lies the most obvious attractiveness of reading literature with C.S. Lewis. He makes the experience a pleasurable one. A second value of entering imagined world is that it, quote, strengthens our relish for real life. So that, for example, reading about enchanted woods, far from making us despise real woods, makes all real woods a little enchanted. A third value is intellectual. Entering imagined worlds allows a reader to clarify values and worldviews. In Lewis's words, to judge between one ethos and another, it is necessary to have got inside both. And if literary history does not help us to do so, it is a great waste of labor. And there is finally the enlargement of our being that we derive from entering alternate worlds where we, quote, see with other eyes, imagine with other imaginations, feel with other hearts. In his book on Spencer's Fairy Queen, Lewis speaks at one point of becoming an inhabitant of its world, an inhabitant of its world. Lewis had a knack for delineating the features of an author's world. Regarding the world in the wind of the willows, Lewis writes, the happiness which it presents to us is in fact full of the simplest and most attainable things. Food, sleep, exercise, friendship, the face of nature, even in a sense, religion. Again, I quote, I have already mentioned youthfulness as a characteristic of Prasar's world. We misread all medieval romance and chronicle if we miss this quality. Whatever age the knights and ladies may actually be, they all behave as if they should never be old. In his headnote to the opening of The Fairy Queen, Lewis writes that the selection to follow, quote, at once creates the atmosphere of Spencer's fairyland, remote yet somehow familiar, beautiful, voluptuous, and troubled with the sense of hidden dangers. Spencer's Fairy Queen itself presents us with a world, quote, of quests and wanderings and inextinguishable desires. Governing Lewis's attention to the properties of the world of literary works is the premise that to read well, we need, first of all, to, quote, respond to the central, obvious appeal of a great work. There's a formula that I have used repeatedly in my teaching. We need to respond, first of all, to, quote, the central, obvious appeal of a great work. Lewis is accordingly critical of the Renaissance humanists who, quote, could not really bring themselves to believe that the poet cared about the shepherds, lovers, warriors, voyages, and battles. They must be only the disguise for something more, quote, adult. Lewis, the travel guide, is the friend of the general reader. In his essay on Hamlet, a small classic, and so are many of Lewis's essays, Lewis sets out, quote, to recall attention from the things an intellectual adult notices from the things an intellectual adult notices to the things a child or a peasant notices. Night, ghosts, a castle, a lobby where a man can walk for four hours together, a graveyard, and a terrible cliff above the sea. And amidst all of these, a disheveled man whose words make us at once think of loneliness and doubt and dread, of waste and dust and emptiness. Lewis's brief sketches of works in his big book on 16th century English literature are filled with outlines of the imagined world that we enter in the work, like this one on Skelton's Booge of Court. Things overheard, things misunderstood, a general and steadily growing sense of being out of one's depth, 
filled a poem with a Kafka-like uneasiness. Not surprisingly, Lewis values atmosphere as a literary quality. As a footnote to my picture of Lewis as the friend of the general reader, let me note in passing that as a travel guide, Lewis never loses his instincts as a teacher. In particular, he is always ready to toss in a bit of helpful literary theory about how to read. Indeed, as his long book of literary theory shows, his essential stance was to pay attention to how people read. A narrative style, Lewis notes helpfully, is not to be judged by snippets. You must read for at least half a day and read with your mind on the story. The first thing to grasp about the sonnet sequence, Lewis wants us to know, is that it is not a way of telling a story. It is a form which exists for the sake of prolonged lyrical meditation. The term lifelike, Lewis tells us helpfully, can mean two very different things in the literary realm. It can mean life li uh, like life as we know it in the real world, but also seeming to have a life of its own, by which criterion Captain Ahab, Old Karamazov, Caliban, Brewer Rabbit, and the giant who says fee, fi, fo, fum, and Jack the Giant Killer are all lifelike. The most salient quality that I experience when Lewis introduces me to authors and work is a desire to read them. After reading his introductory essay on Spencer as an undergraduate, I knew at once that I wanted to be a serious student of Spencer and the Fairy Queen. Reading A Preface to Paradise Lost on my own during the weeks preceding my first term in graduate school made me one of Master Melton, who became the subject of my dissertation. Reading the allegory of love recently, I found myself wanting to dip into a French author simply because I was intrigued by Lewis's account of his quirks as a writer. The fact that he had the misfortune, quote, to have read and remembered everything, and nothing he remembered could be kept out of his poem, <laughs> as well as his ability to produce inspired moments without unifying them. Quote, tomorrow he will be thinking differently, feeling differently, making a different kind of poetry. <laughs> Don't you find that intriguing? <laughs> If Lewis can thus entice readers into, into individual works and authors, he does something similar for the entire world of imaginative literature. The key to it is Lewis's immense range of reading. I know of no critic who refers to so many works and authors. In his single essay on stories, which doubtless ranks as one of Lewis's lighter, more popular essays, he refers to no fewer than two dozen authors and an equal number of specific works. One byproduct of all this reading is that it conveys a sense of the momentousness of literature along the lines of Lewis's observation that, quote, those of us who have been true readers all our life seldom fully realize the enormous extension of our being, which we owe to authors. The gift for organization. One of the most obvious gifts of Lewis as critic is his penchant for organization. The result is a plethora of lay of the land generalizations that provide overviews for vast stretches of literature. For me, these organizing schemes have been equally useful as prospective signposts telling me what to look for as I have embarked on a body of literature for the first time, or as a retrospective vantage point from which to make sense of data that I have already encountered. In a single packed sentence of, in The Allegory of Love, Lewis organizes a lot of ancient classical literature with the observation that in ancient literature, Love seldom rises above the levels of merry sensuality or domestic comfort, except to be treated as a tragic madness, which plunges otherwise sane people, usually women, into crime and disgrace. 
<laughs> well, who can doubt it? <clears throat> I mean, it's, it's classical literature. I teach it. Now, the downside of such organizing generalizations is that they represent a streamlined version of the data that actually exists. We all know that. This stricture does not, however, cancel the usefulness of the overview, and it is the latter that was a specialty of Lewis. Often the insights that I have found most useful in Lewis's criticism have been asides that were subordinate to the main argument. Early in the allegory of love, for example, as Lewis is preparing to make the case for the novelty of courtly love as a way of thinking about the relation between the sexes, he notes in passing, it seems to us natural that love should be the most common theme of serious imaginative literature. It seems to us natural to think of that. Well, yes, now that Lewis mentions it, it is obvious how dominant a motif romantic love has been in Western literature. The implications of the statement extend throughout literary history to the latest slate of movies. In the weeks preceding teaching my first class at Wheaton College, as I was giving thought to an opening day theoretic lecture on reading literature within a Christian context, my sister just happened to give to me a newly released book containing Lewis's essay, Christianity and Culture. To this day, I marvel at how much theoretic mileage I got out of just this one essay. As Lewis pursues the idea that although the virtues espoused by Western literature have been generally Christian, the virtues have been Christian, the values have not been. And in the course of that, he provides the following overview of the value structure of Western literature. Quote, some of the principal values actually implicit in European literature were honor, sexual love, material prosperity, pantheistic contemplation of nature, Sansuk awakened by the past, the remote, or the imagined supernatural, liberation of impulses. Yes, this is a simplification, but it accounts for an awfully lot of the literature that I teach, from classical antiquity to the modern age. Some of Lewis's overview comments are observations not on a body of literature, but on literary theory. In Reflections on the Psalms, as Lewis prepares to explain Hebrew parallelism, he observes, the principle of art has been defined by someone as the same in the other. Thus, in a country dance, you take three steps and then three steps again. That is the same. But the first three are to the right and the second three to the left. Rhyme consists in putting together two syllables that have the same sound except for their initial consonants, which are other. In a similar vein, Lewis identifies the rhetorical structure of Shakespeare's sonnets as that of theme and variations a formula that has been central to my teaching of literature and that I first encountered in Lewis. Also in Reflections on the Psalms, Lewis clarifies a key principle of lyric poetry when he speaks of, quote, all the licenses and all the formalities, the hyperboles, the emotional rather than logical connections, which are proper to lyric poetry. Undergirding Lewis's organizing penchant is an analytic bent of mind that is always ready to break a topic into constituent parts, often numbered. Here are specimens of a formula that Lewis used dozens of times. Sidney's defense of poetry will not be rightly understood unless we keep two facts carefully in mind. Two ways in pastoral lay open before Spencer. The prose fiction of this period may be divided into three classes. At least five different forms in which evil appears in the Fairy Queen may be distinguished. The grandeur of Milton's style is produced mainly by three things. Dante's similes may be divided into four classes. The golden lyric of the 16th century differs from the old kind in three ways. 
The subject matter of Shakespeare's sonnets cannot be readily categorized, quote, and this for two reasons makes singularly little difference. As an organizing strategy, the technique works wonders, and it is a major ingredient of Lewis's helpfulness to readers who want to get a handle on an author or work. Making the older literature accessible. I spoke earlier about Lewis's ability to provide an entry into the imagined worlds of specific authors and works. As an extension of this, Lewis shows amazing skill at making the whole world of the older literature accessible to modern readers for whom the past seems foreign. In his inaugural lecture given at when he assumed the chair of medieval and renaissance literature at Cambridge University, Lewis stepped forward aggressively as, quote, the spokesman of old Western culture. On the same occasion, Lewis confided, I myself belong far more to that old Western order than to yours. Lewis claimed, moreover, the ability to possess, claimed to possess the ability to read, quote, as a native, text that most moderns read as foreigners. And he expressed finally, quote, his settled conviction that in order to read old Western literature aright, you must suspend most of the responses and unlearn most of the habits you have acquired in reading modern literature. The claim was no doubt exaggerated, yet it explains much of what Lewis does in his criticism. In a preface to Paradise Lost, Lewis challenges the theory that we should read the old, older literature only for what is universal in it and offers instead the fault in three ways. The subject matter of Shakespeare's sonnets cannot be readily categorized, quote, and this for two reasons makes singularly little difference. As an organizing strategy, the technique works wonders, and it is a major ingredient of Lewis's helpfulness to readers who want to get a handle on an author or work. Making the older literature accessible. I spoke earlier about Lewis's ability to provide an entry into the imagined worlds of specific authors and works. As an extension of this, Lewis shows amazing skill at making the whole world of the older literature accessible to modern readers for whom the past seems foreign. In his inaugural lecture given at when he assumed the chair of medieval and renaissance literature at Cambridge University, Lewis stepped forward aggressively as, quote, the spokesman of old Western culture on the same occasion. A second bit of methodology is to study things outside the poem and to steep oneself in the vanished period, thereby re-entering the poem with eyes more like those of the native. Now perhaps seeing that what you thought strange was then ordinary, and that what seemed to you ordinary was then strange. It would be misleading, though, to picture Lewis as valuing only what the original audience saw in the literature of the remote past. Lewis is equally adept at bridging the gap from the ancient world to the modern. He writes, for example, that we are tempted, we are tempted to treat courtly love as a mere episode in literary history, whereas an unmistakable continuity connects the French love song with the love poetry of the present day. Despite the apparent remoteness of the world of Spencer's Fairy Queen, its, quote, houses and bowers and gardens are always at hand. One of the most creative of all Lewis's critical excursions is the essay in which he shows the realistic human psychology at work in the demons who speak in Milton's imagined council in hell. To return to an earlier point, Lewis, the tour guide to the older literature, is at the same time Lewis, the writer of introductions to works and eras. His preface to Paradise Lost remains the best introduction to epic as a genre and to Milton's poem. His epoch-making book, The Allegory of Love, opened the way for modern readers to enjoy courtly love literature. 
In a similar manner, Lewis's book, The Discarded Image, is essentially an introduction to the medieval and Renaissance worldview with emphasis on the otherness of that world compared to the modern one. As a footnote to Lewis, the salvager of what might otherwise be lost to a reader, I would note in passing that we are indebted to his sharing of critical viewpoints gleaned from out-of-the-way places. Lewis is the one who popularized Charles Williams' quip, Hell is inaccurate, to indicate that Satan lies about every subject he mentions in Paradise Lost. Hell is inaccurate. Lewis is likewise the one who calls attention to how Crabbe notes, quote, in a passage not often enough quoted, that a grim and distressful tale may offer as complete an escape from the reader's actual distresses as fantasy. Aphorism and humor. One of the things that makes Lewis's criticism so winsome is his aphoristic ability. An aphorism is a statement that is so striking that it compels attention and insight and sticks in the memory. Several things converge here. Quickness of mind and wit, an analytic impulse that once matters sharply defined, the organizing mentality that wants to see big tracts of data made manageable, and dislike of prolixity. Some of Lewis's greatest discussions wind their way to a climactic formula that makes the whole work under discussion fall into place. Quote, I am defending Milton's style as a ritual style. What Chaucer did in Troilus and Criseida was, quote, a process of medievalization. The medieval view of the cosmos, though untrue, is to be understood as, quote, a work of art. Some of Lewis's aphorisms relate to a whole body of literature. One of the most useful sentences that Lewis ever penned is this one. The romantic poet wishes to be absorbed into nature, the Elizabethan, to absorb her. I myself would substitute the word classical for Elizabethan. The romantic poet wishes to be absorbed into nature, the classicist, to absorb her. Uh, and I, I get a lot of mileage out of that in teaching nature writing in the respective eras. In a similar way, what vast tracts of the Romance tradition are encapsulated by Lewis's formula? Interlocked stories of chivalrous adventure in a world of marvels. In talking about the bookishness of the medieval mind, Lewis describes the literati of the Middle Ages as literate people who had lost most of their books and what survived was a chance collection. Other aphorisms apply to specific authors. Thomas More's English prose style is stodgy and dough-like. <laughs> While, quote, poor Wyatt seems to be always in love with women he dislikes. <laughs> On Surrey's translation of Virgil's Aeneid, the first blank verse in the English language, Lewis writes, we should stand by the first English blank verse as reverently as we stand by the springs of the Thames. Again, regarding Milton's emphasis on hierarchy in Paradise Lost, we shall be in constant danger of supposing that the poet was inculcating a rule when he, in fact, was enamored of a perfection. The tendency of utopias to circumscribe life with rules is rendered memorable in Lewis's sardonic understatement that, quote, it is not love of liberty that makes men write utopias. Some vintage Lewis aphorisms bring aspects of literary theory into focus. For example, there is hope for a man who has never read Mallory or Boswell or Tristram Shandy or Shakespeare's sonnet. But what can you do with a man who says he has read them? Entertainment as a function of liter literature, quote, is like a qualifying examination. If a fiction can't provide even that, 
we may be excused from inquiry into its higher quality. One of Lewis's classic one-liners is on the importance of form in literature. It is easy to forget that the man who writes a good love sonnet needs not only to be enamored of a woman, but also to be enamored of the sonnet. It is easy to forget that the man who writes a good love sonnet needs not only to be enamored of a woman, but also to be enamored of the sonnet. Another is his comment on metaphor. Quote, every metaphor is an allegory in little. Every metaphor is an allegory in little. In one of the few passages in which Lewis speaks self-consciously as a Christian critic, he comments thus about the relative unimportance of literature compared to the ultimate spiritual issues. The Christian knows from the outset that the salvation of a single soul is more important than the production or preservation of all the epics and tragedies in the world. Lewis's essay, The Literary Impact of the Authorized Version, a classic to this day, has rendered permanently memorable the difference between a literary source and a literary influence in this aphorism. A source gives us things to write about. An influence prompts us to write in a certain way. A source gives us things to write about. An influence prompts us to write in a certain way. Again, quote, great subjects do not make great poems, usually indeed the reverse. Finally, some of Lewis's choicest aphorisms extend beyond literature to life, and these do endear him to the person who has developed a taste for reading literature with him. Examples abound. It is not the remembered but the forgotten past that enslaves us. No man would find an abiding strangeness on the moon unless he were the sort of man who could find it in his own back garden. Aphorisms of the type I have noted are a close relative to humor, and this too is a quality that makes Lewis an inviting companion on one's literary sojourns. Some of the most deliciously humorous aphorisms of Lewis come in his denigration of bad writing. Writes Lewis, when medieval literature is bad, it is bad by honest, downright incompetence, dull, prolex, or incoherent, whereas the badness of some neo-Latin work of the Renaissance is something new. Quote, the badness which no man could incur by sheer defect of talent but only by endless labor to be wrong. <laughs> William Webb, quote, is in a class by himself, uniquely bad. <laughs> While George Chapman's Shadow of Night possesses some of the characteristics that, quote, we expect in the poem of a coterie, there are degrees of silliness which the individual can hardly reach in isolation. <laughs> Lewis does not spare the masters from his withering satire. Consider, for example, his verdict that, quote, of Spencer Shepard's calendar as poetry, we must confess that it commits the one sin for which in literature no merits can compensate. It is rather dull. I have never in my life met anyone who spoke of it in tones that betray real enjoyment. <laughs> if you have suffered through the Shepard's calendar, you will understand. Of uh, one of his favorite Renaissance authors, Lewis writes, there is so much careless writing in Astrophel and Stella that malicious quotation could easily make it appear a failure. Sidney can hiss like a serpent, sweet swelling lips, well mayest thou swell. Gobble like a turkey, models such be wood globes, and quack like a duck, but God what, what not, what they mean. <laughs> Uh, one of the tour de forces of Lewis's criticism is his attempt, I think unconvincing, to discredit the claims for the superiority of the rhythms of the King James Bible. 
as a rhythmic equivalent for after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. As a rhythmic equivalent, Lewis gives us after the cocktail, a soup, but the soup was not very nice. <laughs> and after the soup, a small, cold pie. <laughs> Uh, because Lewis was a person with a temperamental taste for humor, the note of humor finds unobtrusive expression at many turns in Lewis's criticism. It is in Lewis's nature to pass on the anecdote of G.K. Chesterton about, quote, a boy who was more afraid of the Albert Memorial than anything else in the world. And Samuel Johnson's view that the Irish, sir, aren't honest people. They never speak well of one another. <laughs> Regarding a book by Kipling, Lewis quipped that I know I am not alone in finding that one actually laughed less than one would have thought possible. Reading <laughs> uh, to conclude, I hope that I have either confirmed or awakened your interest in the literary criticism of C.S. Lewis, the reading of which puts right before you the inviting prospect of reading literature with C.S. Lewis. Thank you. Enjoyed this episode? Be sure to check out more from Dr. Leland Riken. Now available on Canon Plus.